Part One, Chapter Nine of Mushrooms on the Moor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Devora Allen. Mushrooms on the Moor, by Frank W. Borum. Part One, Chapter Nine, Forty. Life moves along so smoothly with most of us that there seems to be very little difference between one birthday and another. But to this rule there is one brilliant and outstanding exception. There is one birthday on which a man should certainly take a holiday, go for a quiet stroll, and indulge in a little serious stock-taking. That birthday is, of course, the fortieth. A man's fortieth birthday is one of the really great days in his life's little story, and he must make the most of it. I live in a city which boasts a comparatively meagre population. The number of people who reach their fortieth birthday simultaneously must be very small. But in a city of any size, some hundreds of people must daily become forty. And if I dwelt in such a place, I should feel tempted to conduct a service every now and again for men and women who are celebrating their fortieth birthday. People so circumstanced, naturally impressed by the dignity and solemnity of the occasion, would welcome such a service and the preacher would have a chance of sowing the seed and ground that was well prepared, and of the greatest possible promise. The selection of a text would present no difficulty. I can think of two right off, one in the Old Testament and one in the New, and there must be scores of others equally appropriate. At forty, a man enters upon middle life. What could be more helpful to him, then, than a short inspiring word on such a text as Habakkuk's prayer, O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years, in the midst of the years make thyself known. I have been recalling this morning some painful memories. In my time I have several times known that peculiarly acute species of anguish that only comes to us when we discover a cherished idol in ruins. Men, some of them ministers, upon whose integrity I would cheerfully have staked everything I possessed, suddenly whelmed themselves in shame and staggered out into the dark. It is an experience that makes a man feel that the very earth is rocking beneath him. It makes him wonder if it is possible for a good man to be somehow caught in a hot gust of devilry and swept clean off his feet. But the thing that has impressed me, as I have counted such names sadly on my fingers, is that, without an exception, they were all in the forties, most of them in the early forties. Youth, of course, often sins, and sins grievously. But youth recovers itself, and frequently emerges chastened and ennobled by the bitter experience. But I can recall no instance of a man who fell in the forties, and who ever really recovered himself. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. I remember that, some time ago, Sir W. Robertson Nicoll quoted a brilliant essayist as saying that the most dangerous years are the forties, the years when men begin to be rich, when they have opportunities of gratifying their passions, when they perhaps imagine that they have led a starved and meagre existence. And so, as I let my mind play about these old and saddening memories, and as I reflect upon the essayist's corroboration of my own conclusion, I fancy I could utter from the very heart of me a particularly timely and particularly searching word to those who had just attained their fortieth birthdays. Or, if I felt that the occasion was too solemn for speech, I could at least lead them in prayer. And when I led them in prayer, it would certainly be Habakkuk's prayer. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make thyself known. It is a prayer for revival and for revelation. 
The real significance of that prayer lies in the fact that the supreme tendency of middle life is towards prosiness. Young people write poetry and get sentimental. So do old people. But people in the forties? Never. A man of forty would as soon be suspected of picking his neighbor's pocket as of writing poetry. He would rather be seen walking down the street without collar or necktie than be seen shedding tears. Ask a company of young people to select some of their favorite hymns or songs. They will at once call for hymns about heaven or songs about love. So will old people. But you will never persuade middle-aged people to sing such songs. They are in the practical or prosy stage of life. The romance of youth has worn off. The romance of age has not arrived. They are between the poetry of the dawn and the poetry of the twilight. And midway between the poetry of the dawn and the poetry of the twilight comes the panting perspiration of noonday. When, therefore, I find myself face to face with my congregation of people who are in the very act of celebrating their fortieth birthday, I shall urge them to pray with the old prophet, that in the midst of the years the youthful romance of their first faith may be revived within them, and that in the midst of the years the revelations that come at eventide may be delightfully anticipated. I said just now, however, that I had an alternative text from the New Testament. I have an idea that if my first service is a success, I shall hold another, and for the sake of variety, I shall address myself to this second theme. Concerning the very first apostolic miracle, we are expressly and significantly told that the man was above forty years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. Now I cannot imagine why that particular is added, unless it is to tell those of us who are now above forty years old that we are not beyond the reach of the sensational. We have not outlived the romance of the miraculous. We are not too old at forty to experience all the marvel and wonder of the grace divine. And even as I write, I confidently anticipate the sparkle that will light up the eyes of these forty-year-olds as I remind them that that man was above forty years of age upon whom this first triumph of the church was wrought. But there are worse things than prosiness. The mere change from the poetry of youth to the prose of middle life need not in itself alarm us. Some of the finest classics in our literature are penned in prose. But within this minor peril lies the germ of a major peril. The trouble is that prosiness may develop into pessimism. And when prosiness curdles into pessimism, the case of the patient is very grave. I heard a young fellow in his teens telling a much older man of his implicit faith in the providence of God. Yes, said the senior, with a sardonic smile. I used to talk like that when I was your age. I heard a young girl telling a woman old enough to be her mother of the rapture of her soul's experience. Ah, replied the elder lady, you won't talk like that when you have seen as much of the world as I have. Here, then, at last we have put our finger on the tragedy that threatens us in the forties. Why is it? The reason is not far to seek. The fact is that at forty a man must drop something. He has been all his life accumulating until he has become really overloaded. He has maintained his interest in all the things that occupied his attention in youth, and all the way along the road fresh claims have been made upon him. His position in the world is a much more responsible one, and makes a greater drain upon his thought and energy. He is married, too, and children have come into his home. There has been struggle and sickness and anxiety. Interests have multiplied, and life has increased in seriousness. But increasing in seriousness, it must not be allowed to increase in sordidness. A man's life is like a garden. There is a limit to the things that it will grow. You cannot pack plants in a garden as you pack sardines in a tin. That is why the farmer thins out the turnips. 
That is why the orchardist prunes his trees, and that is why the husbandman pinches the grape buds off the trailing vines. Life has to be similarly treated. At forty a man realizes that his garden is getting overcrowded. It contains all the flowers that he planted in his sentimental youth, and all the vegetables that he set there in his prosaic manhood. It is too much. There must be a thinning out. And unless he is very, very careful, he will find that the thinning out process will automatically consist of the sacrifice of all the pansies and the retention of all the potatoes. Now, when I address my congregation of people who are celebrating their fortieth birthday, I shall make a most fervent appeal on behalf of the pansies. Potatoes are excellent things, and the garden becomes distinctly wealthier when, in the twenties and thirties, a man begins to moderate his passion for pansies and to plant a few potatoes. But a time comes when he must make a stand on behalf of the pansies, or he will have no soul for anything beyond potatoes. Round his potato beds, let him jealously retain a border of his finest pansies, and depend upon it, when he gets into the fifties and sixties, he will be glad that all through life he remained true to the first fondnesses of youth. Not that he will have to wait for the fifties and the sixties. As soon as a man has faced the situation, taken his stand and made his decision, he begins to congratulate himself upon it. That is one of life's most subtle laws. Let us then see how it operates in another field. Sir Francis June, the great divorce judge, said that the eighth year was the dangerous year in wedded life. More tragedies occurred in the eighth year than in any other. And Mr. Philip Gibbs has recently written a novel entitled The Eighth Year, in which he makes the heroine declare that in marriage the eighth year is the fatal year. It's a psychological fact, said Madge. I work it out this way. In the first and second years, a wife is absorbed in the experiment of marriage and in the sentimental phase of love. In the third and fourth years, she begins to study her husband and to find him out. In the fifth and sixth years, having found him out completely, she makes a working compromise with life and tries to make the best of it. In the seventh and eighth years, she begins to find out herself. Life has become prosaic. Her home has become a cage to her. In the eighth year, she must find a way of escape. Anyhow, anywhere. And in the eighth year, the one great question is, in what direction will she go? There are many ways of escape. And so comes the disaster. All this seems to show that the eighth year of marriage is like the fortieth year of life. It is the year in which husband and wife are called upon to make their supreme stand on behalf of the pansies. And supposing they do it? Supposing that they make up their minds that everything shall not be sacrificed to potatoes. What follows? Why, to be sure, the best follows. Coventry Patmore, in his Angel in the House, the classic of all young husbands and young wives, says that the years that follow the eighth are the sweetest and the fullest of all. What, he asks, what, for sweetness like the ten years' wife, whose customary love is not her passion or her play but life, with beauty so maturely fair, affecting mild and manifold, may girlish charms no more compare than apples green with apples gold. Ah, still unpraised Honoria, heaven, when you into my arm it gave, left not hereafter to be given, but grace to feel the good I have. Here, then, is the crisis reached, the stand successfully made on behalf of the pansies, and all life fuller and richer forever afterwards in consequence. Every man and woman at forty is called upon for a similar chivalrous effort. At forty we become the knights of the pansies, and if we let them go we shall find that at fifty it will be difficult to find even a sprig of heartsease anywhere. 
Whether I take as my text the prophet's prayer for a revival and a revelation in the midst of the years, or the story of the man who was more than forty years old when he fell under the spell of the miraculous, I know how I shall close my sermon. I shall close by telling the story of Dr. Ken and Maggie Tulliver from the mill on the floss. It will convince my hearers that folk in the forties have a great and beautiful and sacred ministry to exercise. Maggie was young, and the perplexities of life were too much for her. Dr. Ken was arrested by the expression of anguish in her beautiful eyes. Dr. Ken was himself neither young nor old, but middle-aged, and Maggie felt a childlike, instinctive relief when she saw that it was Dr. Ken's face that was looking into hers. That plain, middle-aged face, with a grave, penetrating kindness in it, seeming to tell of a human being who had reached a firm, safe strand, but was looking with helpful pity towards the strugglers still tossed by the waves, had an effect on Maggie at this moment which was afterwards remembered by her as if it had been a promise. And then George Eliot makes this trite and significant remark. The middle-aged, she says, who have lived through their strongest emotions, but are yet in the time when memory is still half-passionate and not merely contemplative, should surely be a sort of natural priesthood, whom life has disciplined and consecrated to be the refuge and rescue of early stumblers and victims of self-despair. Most of us, at some moment in our young lives, would have welcomed a priest of that natural order in any sort of canonicals or uncanonicals, but had to scramble upwards into all the difficulties of nineteen, entirely without such aid. And after hearing that fine story, my congregation of folk on the threshold of the forties will return from the quiet church to the busy street, humming the songs that they sang at nineteen, vowing that, come what may, the potatoes shall not elbow out all the pansies, and congratulating themselves that the richest wine in the chalice of life still waits their thirsty lips. End of Part 1, Chapter 9